0: There are certain times when it seems like his met or something because we are having, as you know, the second edition of our Talking About Race lecture series with the Open Society Institute of Baltimore. And I couldn't think of a better time to be having this. (laughs) And I have here in my notes intelligent, educational, and maybe controversial discussion. And as you know, race, once a taboo subject has definitely been the centerpiece of news stories and debate all summer long and into the fall. Um, From arrest to heckling to all types of things, the topic of race has been brought up and brought into the conversation. So we couldn't think of two better men and also um, a better forum to talk about the question, do we still need to talk about race? And we'd like to thank, uh, as the Edie Bradford Library, our partner in this special series, the Open Society Institute of Baltimore. And this evening would not be possible without their hard work and dedication to making Baltimore a better place to live for everyone. And I just want to give them a hand, their board members here. when we kicked off the lecture series last June with award-winning journalist Gwen Eiffel and civil rights attorney Sherilyn Eiffel, who's also on the board of the Edith Pratt Free Library and Open Society Institute, and we had a packed house to really start these conversations and we will continue that and we hope we can duplicate that intensity tonight. More than a century ago, philanthropist Ian Pratt gave the city of Baltimore more than a million dollars, and that was in 1882. And you can imagine the present value of that gift today. To make sure, and in 1882 this was very significant, and very different in Baltimore, that this public library, quote, remained free for all, without distinction of race or color. And that was something really significant to say in the city at that time. And because of his pretty fearlessness right then, um, his legacy has benefited thousands and generations of Baltimoreans. Several months ago, after our uh, series started, an older gentleman who had been at the lecture series sent us a donation and he told us that he will continue to support the Pratt financially even now that he lives in the suburbs because the Pratt was the one place that welcomed him despite his race when he was growing up in Baltimore. And his story, like those of many others, is a true testament to the importance of a free public library in this city. In the coming weeks and starting tomorrow, we hope some of you can be here for the opening reception of a special exhibit uh, curated by Professor Larry Gibson in AACP Baltimore branch, 97 years and counting. And on your way out, you might get a chance to see some of the exhibit. It's a wonderful exhibit from their archives and uh, Mr. Della's will also be here tomorrow night. We also have in the upcoming weeks the CBS News correspondent and Baltimore native Byron Pitts who will be here and one of our favorites, award-winning writer Dr. Cornel West will be here again. And this and this program and others wouldn't be possible Without generous contributions and supports of our donors, just like PBS and all that, you see that? That's the same thing with the Pratt Library. But we are so pleased that at the time when libraries are needed most, we hope that you will continue to support the Pratt. We just received our last um, annual statistics. There was a 32% increase in the number of people visiting Pratt Library. Uh, amazing. amazing. Uh, we just got in this today's um, city paper. Voted um, when they have best of this, best of that, and they usually have best branch and they pick a branch. This year they said anyone you can go to,
1: yeah. and that was like
0: yes. <laughs> finally. And one of my favorites, the September issue of Washingtonian magazine that has the fall getaways and it has all these great day trips from Washington and stuff. They mention Baltimore, and right under the Basilica is a great place to go, is this central library. And they put that in there, and so that's really cool. They even mention our new cafe. We are entirely wireless, we're going to be wireless in all of our branches by the end of this uh, calendar year, and we'll be loaning laptops out to people in the central library. So if you come in, you can get a laptop, use it in the library. In the library. In the library. But we're working on the other stuff, so we've got a lot of good stuff, and so we just thank you for your support and being there. Um, and being there with us. And so now to introduce and get the evening going is the director of the Open Society Institute in Baltimore, uh, a woman who's done so much for this city, uh, Ms. Diana Morris.
2: having a more wonderful partner uh, to kick off this series and continue it throughout this year and also to have a, 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 find a better or more welcoming place than this library. And in the spirit of all that this library does for our community, I want to also just tell you that outside there's this uh, excerpt from our newsletter, books that changed our lives and our thinking. And they're all books that have to do with race and race relations that some of us picked as very important books in our own lives. So uh, use this library to find these books and others that really matter to you. Um, As Carla said, this is a a year-long series that we're very happy to be uh, launching with the Enoch Pratt Library. And since we started this series, we've just had a wonderful response. People have said this is something that is so important that it's overdue, that it's timely, that we got to get started and that they're so happy that there's a real opportunity to come together and talk about some of these tough issues. And as Carl also said, in light of so many events that have happened just recently, just this summer, uh, and I'll say very specifically the very unfortunate arrest of Professor Henry Louis Gates on the porch of his own house in Cambridge, and then very specifically the Uh, unfortunate comments by Congress Joe Wilson shouting "You lie during President Obama's address, we're certainly convinced that it's really more important than ever, really imperative, that we discuss race and really think through how it plays a role in our society. As we've noted before, the issue of race is one that we at the Open Society Institute touch upon every day as we do our work to try to really increase opportunity and justice in our community, especially for those people who have been historically or currently discriminated against. Our work involves more focuses on three interconnected issues, tackling drug addiction, focusing on over-reliance on incarceration, and also focusing on the obstacles that impede our youth from succeeding both in and outside of the classroom. In a city where 65% of the population is African American and where we have a growing immigrant population and where many of our residents live in poverty, we recognize that the issue of race is implicitly involved in everything we do and everything that we're trying to improve. We know that we need to continually ask ourselves how historical and institutional racism affect current and future conditions. And we believe that it's really critical for us to listen closely and understand more deeply each other's experiences relating to race relations, discrimination, and opportunity. So we're very excited about our event tonight, but before we um, actually meet our presenters, all of whom are now here, I'm happy to say, um, I want to tell you about some upcoming events. The next event after this is going to be Can We Talk About Race? How Race Affects Our Classroom? And that discussion is going to feature Beverly Daniel Tatum, who many of you know is the president of Spelman College, as well as David Hornbuck, who was the former superintendent of schools in Philadelphia and now is a Baltimore resident. That's going to take place on November 2nd, right here, at 7 o'clock. I also hope that you'll listen to the radio station WYPR which is featuring a segment entitled Across the Divide, Stories About Race, right here in Baltimore. And this is going to be a series of personal stories told by people from our own community about the experiences they've had about race that changed their lives. We've actually started a new web page that will allow you all to participate. It's www.storiesaboutrace. .org, www.storiesaboutrace.org and you can tell tell your own stories about race and submit them on that and place them on that website. The series is going to culminate in a live performance as part of the stoop storytelling series at the Center Stage in February. So your story may be chosen if if you're interested. So I would urge you all because this is a series that I think is just getting richer and richer with different people's interests and different institutions' interests. So please keep a look at our own website, which is www.osi-baltimore.org, so you'll have more information about these additional programs. But right now, I'd like to turn to our session tonight and introduce the three people who are going to be part of our conversation. And I'd actually like to ask them to join me on the stage right now, please. We've designed these programs to be a series of conversations about race and therefore as you see we have three very comfortable chairs for our guests and we've also asked Judge Andre Davis to serve as the moderator. He'll throw out the first questions this evening, he'll also participate in the discussion, but you all will have a chance too because he's going to lead a question and answer session towards the end of the conversation which will give you a chance to participate. Now, as a quick introduction, I want to start with the most important thing first, which is that we're so proud to say that Judge uh, Davis has been a member of the OSI Board since the very inception of our work here. On the other hand, he has some other things to his credit. He is the U.S. District Court uh, for the District of Maryland uh, judge. He's a judge serving there now. But earlier this spring, President Obama nominated Judge Davis (laughs) to serve on the fourth election. So we're all hoping that his uh, confirmation by the full Senate is weeks if not uh, days away. Very exciting for all of us and for the rule of law. Uh, Let me now introduce also the two speakers who we are very pleased to have with us. Uh, One is Ben Jealous, living right here among us in in Baltimore. He is the 17th president and chief executive officer of the NAACP. And as many of you know, the youngest person to hold this position in the organization's nearly 100-year history. Before his appointment... to the NAAC, uh, Ben Della served as the president of the Rosenberg Foundation, a really wonderful private foundation that supports civil and human rights advocacy to benefit California's working families. And prior to that, he was the director of the U.S. Human Rights Program at Amnesty International. While he was there, he led efforts to pass federal legislation against prison rape, to rebuild public consensus against racial profiling, especially in the wake of 9-11, and to expose the widespread sentencing of children to life without parole, uh, which is such an important issue, including right here in Maryland. He's also served as the executive director of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, and that's a federation of more more than 200 black community newspapers. And while he was there, he rebuilt its 90-year-old national news service and launched a web-based initiative, which is more than double the number of black newspapers publishing online. We're also so pleased to have Gerald Torres with us. He's a leading figure in the critical race theory discussions, as well as an expert in agricultural and environmental law. Since 1993, he, served as, he has been serving as professor uh, at the University of Texas Law School. He's a co-author, as many of you know, along with Harvard Law Professor Lonnie Gunir, of The Miner's Canary, Enlisting Race, Resisting Power, Transforming Democracy. This landmark book was, published, uh, was described by Publishers Weekly in 2002 as one of the most provocative and challenging books on race produced in years. And it remains a powerful commentary, of course, to this day. He currently serves as the chair of the board of the Advancement Project, which has offices in DC and LA, a national organization that's very important. And he's past president of the Association of American Law Schools. He was honored with the 2004 Legal Services Award from the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund for his work to advance the legal rights of Latinos. So welcome, all. We look forward to this conversation.
1: Well, good evening. Good evening. Uh, Let me take just a moment of personal privilege and express for myself and many of you out there our gratitude to Dr. Hayden for opening her space to us. Uh, being here tonight is such an unmitigated joy for me as I remember back 50 years sitting on the floor of Branch Number 5 mm-hmm. in crack, mm-hmm. on Broadway <laughs> between Madison and Ashland Avenue, uh, soaking up the love and the knowledge and the joy that is what learning is all about and it's stayed with me all my, all my life. I'm really pleased that you are here and that you are here to have a <laughs> Ben Durrell, we sit here uh, in the closing weeks and months of the first decade of the 21st century. An extraordinary moment in the history of this country, a black president the strongest person in the world occupying the White House. The question tonight is: in that light, do we still need to talk about race? Um, haven't we reached the point of <laughs> ultimate racial equality in this country? Are we there yet? Do we really need to keep talking about this stuff? Ben? You know, that
3: would seem like more of a question even a couple weeks ago. God bless President Carter. Yeah. The, uh, oh, I need the mic, sorry. used to be a ago. I, um, God bless Carter, and good to see Dr. Cheatham. The, uh, and it's also just good to be in my second home of Baltimore. I spent all my summers here. My mom grew up here, desegregated Western High School. Parents met here. Dad desegregated lunch counters down, down, downtown. Um, you know, that question would have been more of a, of a question, I think, months ago. Unfortunately, we've we been pulled in to this erratic, mean-spirited, national conversation with racial, uh, with 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 really pronounced racial kind of currents right now. put. you know, we can't be post-racial until we're post-racism. But we can't even hope to get there if we can't get this this national conversation back to a place that is civil. You know, we have to realize that the Klan and hate groups in this country have been revived and revived again. And we're in a moment right now with the rise of hate uh, TV on top of hate radio that's inviting that sort of renaissance of white supremacist activity and overt racism. What's at stake is perhaps different now than it has been in the past because I'll, I'll, I'll close on this that we probably have to Largest group of completely sort of ambiguous on the subject, undecided people could really go either way that we've ever had. And, a small, and the smallest numbers of uh, a dedicated racists, simply because they've died off, the biggest number of people who uh, really are committed to a multiracial, egalitarian society. And so we have to understand that there is a war right now for the hearts and minds of, those, of that big group of people who are undecided, who could go, you know, the types of folks we saw during the, the uh, primary in New Hampshire, you know, friends who were there calling back saying, yeah, I had guys who were crying, they didn't know what, they wanted to vote for McCain in the primary, they wanted to vote for Obama in some of the states where it you could switch, and they just didn't know which one, those are the folks that we're trying to capture right and so we really have to think. I think very in, uh, intentionally about how we talk. We need to be very clear that that's the audience that we're uh, going for, and we have to go out and uh, we have to go after them with the same level of gusto that we catch from Glenn Beck.
4: I, I would I would agree that that. Uh, You know, we are at at an important moment, uh, and it's it's important. The the way you phrased the question, of course, was uh, uh, provocative. Uh, You know, what it made me think of, of course, was uh, you described uh, President Obama as the most powerful man in the the world, right? And and what it made me think of was, you know, Jack Johnson, you know, and... uh, and when Jack Johnson became heavyweight champion of the world, right? The heavyweight champion of the world right? it was supposed to be the the baddest man in the world, right? And what did it spawn in the United States, right? But but, but was a, a, a national, a international campaign, right? To, to try to get someone to, to, to dethrone him, right? Uh, and 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 what we finally moved in sports, right? We finally moved past that to be able to, to, to respect uh, 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 quality and respect uh, leadership and respect achievement Uh, and you have the president here who in fact did win a resounding victory in November and what you have is a a small core of people who are resisting that victory and trying to use I think elements of the past to resist that victory Uh, and it's it really is incumbent upon us, and this—if we learned anything from this summer—I think the thing we learned is we need to organize. <laughs> that November wasn't enough. That 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 if if the president is going to get his agenda passed. If we think that we need to continue the anti-racist discussion and the anti-racist discussion isn't just about anti-racism but about getting a program that is good for all Americans then we need to organize. And if it takes the form of combating racism then it's got to take that form too. And that's what we need to do.
1: That, perhaps, was a macro view of things expressed by these two distinguished gentlemen, but let's take it down to a micro level, perhaps. Uh, Here on the stage tonight sit three men of color, who, let me say with all due modesty, (laughs) have in some ways reached, if not the pinnacle of their professional pathways, certainly among the highest reaches. A Rhodes Scholar who leads one of the, if not the preeminent civil rights and human rights organizations in the history of the world. professor at one of the top law schools in the United States, a scholar of renown, and a, a judge serving the people of America with a lifetime appointment uh, to the federal bench. Uh, isn't that proof positive that race simply has been overcome as an issue or as a barrier to success? <laughs> I guess we all go home now.
4: <laughs> Would that it were true? Would that it were true? I mean the the, the, uh, the the reality is that that if if it were if it were true, that we we're, it's emblematic of something. And what it's emblematic of is that we have come a long way. And I think it would be a mistake to say that, that this society hasn't changed. The fact that we have a black president, the fact that a lot of, of, uh, uh, a lot of interracial uh, relationships have emerged, that, that some of the, the grossest forms of, of racism uh, are no longer permissible. I think that, that a lot of, of things have changed and I think it would be wrong to say that the society hasn't progressed, but when you have a, a, a situation, right, that the where the the uh, the median net worth of uh, uh, the, the white Americans is still uh, ninety thousand dollars a year, and the median net worth of African American families is, is six thousand dollars, right? Then you have to say. Things haven't changed in a way that that allows us to say we can all go home. The job is done because it means that it means that we are now in a position to take the good fortune that we've had and to put it to use, to put it to work. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not for one. I'm not going to sneeze at the good fortune. <laughs> you know, but all it means is is you know to whom much is given, much is demanded. Uh, and so, so uh, you know, it's it's time to get to work.
3: You know, you, uh, we have to acknowledge how much has been gained, how far we've come. The jobs that we hold. Show that, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in, in my case, the scholarship I want, showed that the you know the barriers have become more permeable. But the point of our work isn't to make the barriers more permeable. The point of our work is to make sure that there are no more barriers. That there are no more barriers. The at this moment, you know, racism is a bit like uh, an onion. Um, You peel off one layer, and there's the next. At this moment, racism is both more permeable and more volatile than it has been. Throughout much of my childhood, throughout all of my parents' and grandparents' lives, the the primary layer of, you know, was, the primary justification, the top layer, if you will, of racism in this country was presumed inferiority. The notion was we couldn't be the coach, we couldn't be the quarterback, we couldn't be the CEO, we couldn't be on the golf course unless we were the caddy. And then uh, Tiger Woods and General Powell and Obama and Oprah, and that argument that black people simply can't be excellent is pretty much thrown out the window. You can have an entire southern white family where every generation has a black hero general powell oprah obama tiger woods what have you you peel back that layer and what you're left with is presumed criminality presumed criminality and that's what we're dealing with right now and the reason that it's more volatile is because if i think if i suspect that you're inferior well that that may not ever go away but it also makes inclined to at least be somewhat benign to take pity on you, offer you a job as a driver. But if I think of you as a criminal, well, first of all, the last job I'll offer you is as a driver. And so, for instance, in you know, cities across this country, it's almost impossible um, for black men to get jobs, you know, the studies have shown even as garbage collectors without a criminal background check. A study comes out of UCLA that says that it's the best interest of most black men for every employer to do a criminal background check, because most employers assume all black men are criminals. And yet, a study came out of the same, this is about two three years ago, out of Princeton, that said that it was easier for a white man with a criminal record to get a job than a black man without. White men with criminal records, right there, you know, stated clearly got more callbacks for job interviews than black. So the, the you read between the lines, what it suggests is that the white guy who says he's a convict is being treated like the honest crook, because he tells you. And the black man who says that he's not, because he really ain't, is treated like the lion crook. Now, it becomes more volatile because If I think that you're a criminal, well, there's virtually nothing I won't do to protect my family from you. And if I think that somebody else reasonably thought you were a criminal, then there's not very much I won't accept them doing either. And that's the context in which we live. It's more permeable because once you're vetted, once you're known, then you can get the cap because they know you're the president of the the, the U.S., right? Or they see you walking out of the corporate headquarters. Uh, his cousin may not be able to get the cat, but he can get the cat, right? Um, You, uh, you know, they don't shrink back on the elevator because they know that you're the SVP of sales or that you live in the penthouse. But until that point, until you know, until, you know, you're in that space of familiarity, you're in the space of complete anonymity, and that's a very dangerous space. That's the space where uh, uh, Diallo died in uh, New York. That space of anonymity, where he sees himself as a hard-working vendor. If you just pull out his wallet and show the cops his ID, everything will be okay. Before he can do that, he's shot for one time.
1: Okay, if, if there is a need to talk about race, um, I'd like each of you to address the question of what is the value of talking about race in a public forum such as this? Is it the case that forums of this sort, conversations of this sort, actually add to people's understanding, or does it subtract from people's understanding? And ultimately, does it change anything, or is it possible that it might?
3: I suspect that most of us here are the choir. So it would be reasonable to ask, well, what's the purpose of preaching to the choir? You preach to the choir so that the choir is motivated to serve as evangelists until they come back to choir rehearsal. That's why you preach to the choir. Yeah, as the professor has laid out, we have to organize. We are in a defensive posture on health care because we were so bold as to believe that we could define it and define the status quo. That what was going to go down in Washington is what we wanted to go down in Washington because the combinations in Washington who's in the Senate, who's in the House, who's in the White House have been defined by progressives in this country. We have the dominant position. And then we got out alinsky by the anti-Alinskyites. We're the we're the masters of those tactics, right? We're the ones that they crib from. And they're schooling us right now. And so, you know, I'm here to talk about it, not because I think there's any great disagreement between us and the audience, but rather to simply ask people to, to fight, to commit, to be unwilling to feel comfortable and say to them, until we've made the country, until we've made the vision real that motivates so many people to vote in that transformative election last fall. We are in a moment right now where we have a large group of undecided people. And what that means is that we can move one way very quickly or the other very quickly. And the people who will decide whether or not we move forward quickly or backward quickly are the people like us. If we fight, we go forward. We go from good to great, just like the Obama campaign did, and we win. If we sit by and we say, well, we've got the right person in Congress and the right person in the Senate, and they're in the, the uh, majority that day will last about this long, and we'll be heard backwards, as far as the politics of this country, just as quickly as we're
4: rushing backwards when it comes to... Talk TV. Yeah, I want to go back to the question of whether it makes sense to talk about race, right? Whether that talking about race in public forum like this uh, makes sense. And, and, and I think it does. And one of the things, one of the points that, that Lonnie and I made in, in, in our book, which I, I urge you all to buy and read, and it, makes, <laughs> it makes an excellent gift. Uh, and, uh, I actually think it reads be better in hardback than in softback. <laughs> I'm joking, <laughs> of no, course. But, but it, it, it is, is that is that race makes some things visible? Right? When you notice race, you notice other things, right? So that when you when you notice race, right, you notice the, the decline of the black middle class. And so you ask yourself, what are the mechanisms that are create that are causing the back black middle class to 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 decline? Then you ask yourself. Are those same mechanisms causing the black, the, the middle class to decline for non-black people? Is it just that because you notice race that that has caused you to, to notice that, for instance, predatory lending that created the the uh, the uh, mortgage crisis, right, is affecting the black community more uh, harshly? than the white community because they were the ones to whom they were pitched and more uh, 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 targeted that ultimately led to the crisis, one of the things that led to the crisis that we saw well if you, if you didn't notice race you wouldn't have seen that other thing let me give you an example from Texas right when affirmative action was banned in Texas right one of the things we said we looked at we, when we looked at, at who was getting admitted to, to the University of Texas If we hadn't looked at at race, we wouldn't have noticed that historically, the freshman class at the University of Texas was being filled by 10% of the high schools in the state of Texas. It's a public university. 10% of the high schools were filling 75% of the freshman class. Okay. If we hadn't looked at race, we wouldn't have noticed that. Race causes us to see that. So talking about race causes us to see things that we would otherwise not see. It makes visible some things that would otherwise be invisible. So talking about race matters. Right? It doesn't It, it, it doesn't mean we're blaming people for stuff, or we're co- looking for victims, or we're looking for perpetrators. It says, let's see how our society works. <laughs> Let's see how institutions work, who they're working for, who they're not working for. Because what you're going to find is, if they're not working for people of color, chances are they're not working for other people too. And those are the political allies that we can join hands together, (coughs) link their fates together, and produce political change.
1: In her uh, remarks a few moments ago, Diana Morris, of course, alluded to the incident involving the world-renowned uh, scholar at Harvard, Henry Lewis Gates, and the incident involving Dr. Gates at his home in Cambridge upon his return from an overseas trip, in which, um, in the course of a police intervention prompted by a 911 call, at the end of the day, he got arrested, and of course we all are familiar with the comments of President Obama not long thereafter and shortly after that, the uh, so-called beer summit at the White House. Uh, Some of you will recall, as I do, uh, just a few years ago, uh, none other than President Bush himself uh, came out very publicly and strongly in condemning racial profile. Um, It wouldn't be an honest conversation tonight, I think, if the gentleman didn't get a chance to weigh in on this question, Uh, the incident involving Dr. Gates and uh, President Obama's response to it, both uh, his initial response to it and then the uh, ultimate response to it. So I call on them to offer their views and uh, express, if they choose, whether uh, either of them has himself been the subject of what he regarded as racial profiling. I don't want to tune Oprah show, you know, but um, you know, uh, but
4: uh, not that I'm mean, against the show. But yeah, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the one, the one, the one, the 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 Gates Institute. The only issue about that that I, I think we need to be careful about, right, is for it to focus people's attention on just the 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 interpersonal kind of racism that it contains, right, and 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 to allow it to divert our attention from the structural impact of the uh, uh, the incarceration and the criminality that's been of black men that's been was talking about earlier. Because uh, Glenn Lowry actually wrote, a, I, I thought, a very powerful op-ed in the New York Times. that, that it got actually almost very little attention. And, and it was actually a really powerful op-ed, because what he said is, is the, uh, the incident should have allowed us to, to focus on the way in which black men, in general, get treated by police. And it's, it, it's obviously a, a, a mistake that was made, but it's a mistake that is, is common. And we need to focus on why that mistake gets made. I thought uh, the, uh, the uh, president's engagement in it was a, a teachable moment for the, the country also, but it, it, it then, of course, spawned the, the flip side for the the uh, the, uh, uh Talk radio and uh, right-wing television to uh, spin inside of the uh, of the uh, of the debate and turn it into uh, a kind of a, a an idea of uh, white people against black people and ignore kind of the structural elements of the of the problem. And I think by taking our eye off the structural elements of the problem, we ignore the the bigger problem, um, you know. I have I ever been racially uh, profiled that yet? Sure. I mean, I mean, in my life, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it, in high school, I was stopped nine times in two years, right? Um, uh, it, was, it was, you know, I for various things. Uh, I was once strip searched on the street, you know, yeah, for armed robbery. Uh, I was accused of armed robbery. You know, did I accuse, what, i was in ninth grade. Um, uh, I was walking home from school. Uh, did I commit armed robbery? Of course not. I knew it was for you know the cops were on the toot. You know, you know they want to see you stand naked in the street. You
1: know? Before I hand the mic to to Ben, could you say just a little bit more about what you uh, refer to as a structural problem?
4: Yeah, I think the, structure, the, the, the structural pr- pr- problem are, is, is two, there are two problems. One is the the, uh, the the belief in black criminality. One, so that if you see, uh, I mean, you know, whether the, the for, for instance, if you see a, 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 a black man, do you pre- presume his criminality? First of all, uh, sec- second. Um, uh, the uh, the issue of poverty. Second, if a person has been uh, accused of a crime, you make it harder for them to get a job. If you make it harder for them to get a job, which is true, right? Then you build in the the structural difficulty of them re-entering the the job market, right? So the idea that they are going to uh, uh, be put in, in a position where they're going to be uh, on, on the on the street and subject to police uh, uh, um, uh, suspicion, the idea that they're going to be in quote neighborhoods where they don't belong, right? Uh, I mean, all of these uh, fall into what I call you know structural uh, problems, but also segregation is a structural problem. Well, many of our cities, now I don't know enough about Baltimore to speak. but many of our cities remain quite segregated right segregation is a structural issue right and segregation then produces disparate criminal uh, justice enforcement right Uh, and this is not to say that police are bad people right my uncle and my cousin are both Policemen, right. and they try to do honorable and good jobs. I am sure. Right. But the the when I say s- s- structural problems, I'm re- referring to high unemployment. I'm referring to se- 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 segregated cities. I'm referring to uh, schools that push kids out. I'm referring to uh, uh, overinvestment in criminal in the criminal justice system. Let me give you an example in in when california passed proposition 209 which made affirmative action illegal okay the 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 Cali- people said oh you know californians are just racist right? and that you can say can say that's true but you could also say you know what californians were responding to uh, the parents were responding to a felt scarcity of higher educational opportunity for their children. They were blaming the wrong persons, right? But what what also happened that year is that was the same year that California's spending on the criminal justice system. Prisons at every level, uh, city, county, and state, exceeded spending on education at every level for the first time in the history of the state of California, spending on incarceration exceeded education. That was a public decision. So there was a scarcity in education. And people felt it, but they blamed the wrong people. They should have blamed the people who made the decision to put the kids in jail rather than in school. Right? And when I talk about structural problems, those are the structural problems I'm talking about. We're, we're-
1: We are pleased at OSI, as many of you are aware I know, uh, that one of the things we really focus on is the issue of reentry and reintegration of uh, ex-offenders uh, back into the community in ways uh, that will uh, help enhance the ability to address that particular structure problem. Ben.
3: Yeah, and uh, right now actually we have several of the nation's largest employers at the table Talking about how they reduce unnecessary uh, barriers to employment across the board for formerly incarcerated folks. The, you know, I want to stand for a second where uh, Gerald left off. Where the, and just to tell you about a conversation I had in California while I was helping Obama win the primary season. I was in a church in far east Contra Costa County, a church men's breakfast, which is now the center of the black community in Northern California because black folks have been pushed out of the Bay Area by housing prices and so forth, stretch all the way almost to the uh, Sierra um, Mountains, um, the foothills around Sacramento. So the middle of the black community in Northern California is now what used to be Orchards. And I'm in this little CME church, church men's breakfast, 7 AM. There's one brother there under 40. He's 28 years old. Call him Bobby. And Bobby, uh, just sort of, he was just sort of shining in the back of the room. His shoes were shining. His pants were pressed. His shirt was crisp. So he stood out. So I went up to him afterwards. I said, you know, hi, I'm ben. Hi, I'm Bobby. He said, Bobby, uh, what do you do? He said, I'm a school resource officer. I said, what's that? He said, uh, I'm a Richmond PD at uh, Richmond High. He said, uh, Bobby, when you graduate from high school? He said, oh, about 10 years ago, coming up on my 10th reunion. I said, that's great. He said, uh, did you go to Richmond High? He said, he said, yeah, of course. I said, did they have officers stationed in the high school when you were there 10 years ago? He said, no, of course not. I said, uh, so why do they have one now? They had 20 years of gang violence in Richmond by the time he had graduated from high school. So I said, why do they have one now? He said, call them I said, Columbine? I said, Columbine, of course. I said, Columbine? He said, said, yeah, you know, that's, that's you know, the federal government. They apportion money for school resource officers after Columbine, a school that wants one can apply for one. The funds come to the local police department. I said, um, I said, wow. I said, Bobby, he said, how many kids do you arrest each semester? He said, oh, well, you know, I arrest far fewer. Don't say hi to my friends over here. I arrest far fewer than the other officers at the school. I said, brother, that's understood. You're at a church, minister with at 7 a.m. on a Saturday. A. So, you are a fine man. You are a good man. How many kids did, did, did you arrest last semester? He said, oh, 15 or 16. That's one a week in an academic semester. Key words in this statement, other officers, OK, at least two. Far fewer, he's doing far fewer, so they're doing far more. So there's two officers that say they're doing two a week. That's five kids a week. Can you imagine being in high school and watching five of your friends, just five kids you know, or just five kids, get led away in handcuffs every week? Every week. So I said "So, Bobby, he said, how many of those arrests, was there even a 10% chance, just a 10% chance of that arrest helped prevent the next
0: Columbine? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't
3: know if you guys even hear here happening, my cousin, uh, Lenny Wilmore, grew over on a... Uh, Madison Avenue, but Lenny was a regional police officer, a regional uh, supervisor, for, still is, for the um, post office Place in Baltimore, a place in Philly, supervising those those. Now, I remember years ago, I said to Lenny, said, we're going to have to buy you Kevlar underwear for Christmas. We'll keep going postal. And Lenny said, be real clear where I work. I work in Harlem, I work in Philadelphia, I work in West Baltimore, I work in D.C. I might get shot walking to the post office. But those are good jobs, Mark. Don't worry about me once I get to the post office. <laughs> so I said, you know, I said to him, you know, how many of, you know, I said to Bobby, I said, you know, how many? You have a 10% chance you prevented the next Columbine? He said, none, of course. I said, of course? He said, none. I said, why? He said, because that happens in Columbine. <laughs> I said, all right. right. So I said, I said, well then, you know, what are you locking up all these babies for? Right, was a little kid, thirteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old. He said, "Biggest reason?" I said, "Yeah, biggest reason." He said, "Acts of defiance." (laughs) And I said, "I said, Bobby, what's an act of defiance?" And he said, "Well, you know, not backing up when I say back up, (laughs) being loud in class persistently, being tardy persistently, coming out in the hallway when you're, you know, without a whole (laughs) ass." Frankly, this is what I looked forward to when I was in the 8th grade. (laughs) We managed to get along in this country for like 225 years without locking up kids for puberty. And now, it's a way for the police department to get subsidized to make sure that they have one more job. And and meanwhile, five kids a week in our community are getting uh, a record. And we told you how hard it is for a black man without a record to get a job in low wage. So imagine what it is to be a young black man with a record. So how many jobs is that costing us for that one job in our community, right? The reality is that we may need that, that officer near that school. We may need him walking a beat around that school. In Philadelphia, you have an 8 in 10 chance of getting away with murder. 20% of the homicides get closed each year. Just 20%. In San Francisco, it's only 30%. The thing that makes the difference, the, the strongest weapon you can have in a war to close homicides are beat officers. Because they get to know people in the community and they can pass some information without walking over to a SWAT car or walking into the station. But we don't need the officer in the school. Because that stuff happens in Columbine. Meanwhile, Columbine has not requested one
1: of these others. Actually, Ben, uh, your, your comments really uh, provide a segue into my next question, and that was about young people. Uh, our future, our hope. Um, how do we engage young people in this conversation? Uh, it's a school night. But you look out there, and we don't see a whole lot of young people. Uh, that's going to be explained. There are, a there are a few. There are a few. There are a few. Uh, but, yeah. How do, how do we engage young people? Where do we go to engage young people? And And how do we overcome the effects of of two generations removed from the civil rights movement,
3: and and, uh, your thoughts on that will be very welcome. If you want to know whether or not a legendary civil rights organization, a human rights organization, is on its way to being merely ordinary or will remain extraordinary, you look at the position of young people in that movement. If young people are out front, it should remain extraordinary. If young people aren't age to find a sandbox on the side with the Kids Campaign of the Year, it's on its way to be an ordinary. I'm working very hard at the NAACP to get young people out in front of everything that we do. My grandma used to watch uh, the kids from time to time for Juanita Mitchell when my mom was growing up in McCullough Homes first half of her life. My mom gets a desegregated Western High School when she was 14, but in the summertime, she would go down to Petersburg to, sit, to, to take part in lunch counter sit-ins. was a wow, lot. I'm so intense. Go meet my, my mom. <laughs> <laughs> she made have desegregated Western High School, taking a risk for other young people, their dignity, their opportunity, but she went to the lunch counter sitting for everybody. We didn't just send young people to lunch counters. Say young people eat at lunch counters. We said everybody eat at the lunch counter. So everybody's dignity would be respected. The we have to make plain to young people who want to get more young people involved. One, there's a place for them, and it's in the front. Two. (laughs) Glad I don't. Two. Exactly what the states are. We, are. we are slipping into the third generation of the school-to-prison pipeline this time. The third generation. If you look at where the rates of incarceration of black people started to take off towards where they are now, five times those of whites, from where they had been for almost 100 years, since we've been counting statistics since just after the Civil War, uh, at roughly one to two times those of whites. It was around 1970. It was around 1970. So here we are, 40 years later, two generations later. And we still have issues acknowledging how serious that is. You know, I was told, spending my summers around people like Judge Bob Watts, young man, all the great, all the great victories have been won. It's the end of history for black people. <laughs> we killed Jim Crow just like we killed his daddy. Your job is to study hard, to play by the rules, because the rules are fair now, and to get rich. I can remember being 20 years old at Columbia University celebrating a friend's 21st birthday. And in a sort of faux nationalist tribe called quest moment. <laughs> somebody pouring libations first to all of our friends who had died before we got to college and then to celebrate that one more of us had made it to 21 as if it should be an accomplishment in the greatest democracy on the planet and the richest country on earth for any man of any demographic to survive to 21 in other words, these children of the dream, these kids who were born after all the great fights had been won, we came of age just in time to find ourselves the most incarcerated people on the planet and the most murdered generation in this country. The elders in our community have to affirm how outrageous the times we live in are right now. you have a young person who feels scared, who feels overwhelmed, who feels disconnected because they feel scared, they feel overwhelmed. The lesson about the past shouldn't be that we want everything and everything's cool now, you need to stop yelling. The lesson needs to be this is how we dream big, this is how we broke it down into achievable steps, this is how we won, by maintaining the tradition. I'm a fifth-generation member of the association. So I know a little stuff about development The tradition that says, to whom much is given, much is expected. The tradition that says every time that you gain an ounce of privilege, even if it's just making it into the ninth grade, you turn around and you take half an ounce of that privilege and you reinvest in somebody behind you.
4: How to intervene at the middle school level, um, and how to deal with race at the middle school level, uh, and how to produce success at the middle school level if we start with the premise that the state was not going to invest a dime in schools. Uh, uh, that is, uh, and so what we did is we, we uh, recruited some people, we got in cars. And the first, first thing we did, we uh, assembled all of the experts. And we had a meeting in Austin, Texas, where I'm from. And we had them tell us how to how you produce a great school. And we dutifully took notes um, and produced a report. And then we put the report in the drawer. Uh, and then we got in cars, because we identified all the, all the poor schools, that, uh, the schools were free lunch reserved that were producing academic excellence and were uh, uh, schools of color and we drove around and we interviewed people and found out how they were dealing with race and how they were dealing with academic success and we said what can we do and how we can produce a model and we tried to produce a model and we tried to replicate that. And so that's one way to try to figure out what people in the community who are our generation, who are down in the community doing work and producing success, what are they doing? What lessons can we learn from the communities? And how can we bring that up and teach the experts? Because the real experts are, I shouldn't say this, I'm an academic. Uh, (laughs) The real experts are the people who are doing it. You know, and you need to learn from them, and they need to see that it's the people who struggled to produce that success that we need to honor and reproduce their success and push it into the official systems. And you know, I agree with, with Ben, that's exactly what we have to do, and that's one way you give back. So that's one way you reinvigorate the, the next, the younger generation. Uh, showing them the the path through, right? Showing them the path through, and showing them that 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 you learn from the people who 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 you know, to you know, borrow the expression, who've made the path by walking.
1: Uh, so we'll we'll bring it to a close, perhaps, for this phase with with this question, which I, I suspect is rather obvious. Um, the question has to do with. Uh, What role, what voice, what possibilities are there for cross-racial efforts to enhance the conversation and and indeed enhance the quality of life for all of us? Uh, We here in Baltimore, well first of all, some people don't know that the NAACP was founded by a group of of cross-racial individuals who uh, came together in the spirit of goodwill uh, to address problems 100 years ago. Uh, and that spirit has lived on in the NAACP all these many years. Uh, here in Baltimore we've had heroes like the late, great Walter Sondheim who uh, reached across the racial divide on more than one occasion and you'll forgive me but I have to recognize Senator Paul Sarbanes who, is, who is who absolutely exemplifies that spirit of goodwill and efforts in that regard. So I'd like the two gentlemen to address themselves to this question of, do we have a reasonable expectation of coalitions and cross-racial efforts to move the conversation along? I would say
4: yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I want to. You know, what I want to do is like everybody stand up, and jump, and shout. <laughs> because the, the answer is the answer is yes. And I want to give I want to give two real life examples and one example that I think uh, yeah, uh, 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 Senator Darity proposes. One is when I was in the Department of Justice. One of the things President Clinton wanted to do was to was to was to produce uh, an executive order on environmental justice. And so rather than just sit down and write an executive order on environmental justice for the president, what I did is I tried to identify environmental justice organizations around the country. I invited them into the Department of Justice to come and talk to me about environmental Justice. And so I identified as many environmental justice organizations around the country as I could. And I said, come into the Department of Justice. And I set aside two weeks and I had them come in and just talk to me, just groups come in and talk to me. And the first thing I discovered is that there was so much cross-racial organizing being done in environmental in the environmental justice area that I hadn't even been aware of it. And you know why there was cross-racial organizing being done in environmental justice? Because poor people know when they're being poisoned. You know, poor people know when they're being uh, taken advantage of. And they said, you know, that poison did not know whether I'm black or whether I'm white, or whether I'm brown. It knows that it's coming into my community, and I need to organize, and they're choosing my community because I'm poor. Right? There were black organizations, there were white organizations, there were brown organizations, but there were also white, black, and brown organizations. And they came into the Department of Justice, and they talked to me, I said, you know what? There's something going on in America. And I need to find out about it. Right, so that's one. Environmental justice is one place where you're going to see interracial organizing going on. And I think we need to, we need to feed it. We need to find out where these organizations are. And we need to help them build. And we need to, it's one area of, of, of uh, uh, environmental work where we need we continue to continue to, to, to work. The other example, I um, hate to do this again to y'all, but I'm going to go back to Texas. And that was the 10% plan. I know a lot of people don't like the 10% plan, right? But when affirmative action is uh, is outlawed, what we said is, look, okay, you know, 10% of the uh, uh, the high schools fill up 75% of the freshman class. We we want to adopt a new rule. We want the rule to be that if you graduate in the top 10% of your high school class, you're automatically eligible to come to the University of Texas. Okay? Now, Texas is the third most segregated state in the country. Okay? So, suddenly that meant you had more black and brown kids eligible to come to the University of Texas and more poor white kids eligible to come to the University of Texas than had ever been eligible in the history of the University of Texas. You had Poor, you had counties that were 100% white and poor that had never sent a student to the University of Texas in the entire 150 year history of the University of Texas. These were counties that were reliably conservative, and you went there and you gave them the data, and suddenly you had guys voting with representatives from the fifth ward of Houston. You know? And the people who are going to save the 10% plan aren't going to be the the black representatives from the Fifth Ward or the brown representatives from the Valley. They're going to be those conservative Republicans from West Texas. And that, the reason is because it's fair. And yet people say, well, you know, it's not fair because some high schools are better than others. And, you know, you say, well, you know, that's right. Some high schools are better than others. But they're all public high schools. I think all the public high schools ought to be equally good. So that a kid growing up up in Del Rio, or Plano, or the west side of Houston, or Dimit, or Muleshoe, all get the same quality education. So when they come to Texas, they're equally well prepared. And if you think they're not prepared, you go tell their parents. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> we have established a cross racial coalition for equal access to higher education in Texas based on the idea that higher education ought to be open to talent. Now, it's under continual assault every time the legislature meets. Private schools hate it. Because private schools don't rank, and it will be changed. I you can mark my words, it will go away, because ultimately, unless we can continue to organize, uh, the powerful win. Right, but that's what another place we can view cross racial organization. And the final thing is, you know, organize, figuring out ways that we can address the question of unequal wealth, not unequal income, unequal wealth. Because all wealth is is congealed income over generations. Right? And the kids shouldn't be punished for the incapacity of our society and our economy that has prevented parents for whatever reason, from being able to accumulate wealth over generations. Right? And San- whether you want to create and Bruce Ackerman at Yale Universities propose this, sanitary proposes this there are bonds that are available to children when they turn 21 that allow them to invest in college education or start a business, do whatever they want. Right? But the men to to the idea of be able to overcome that wealth deficit. A black family would have to save 100 percent of their earned income for three years. That is not spend a dime on food, shelter, clothing for three years right, to match the uh, wealth of the, the wealth, not the income, wealth of the average white family. Right. The person's People get punished for the children, and my question is: Can we conceive of a way? And this is also that mechanism also applies to poor white children too, not just poor kids. We see it by books on am right? Can we think of a mechanism to assist poor kids to give them that leg up? Yeah.
3: And the uh, mechanism may already exist. I mean, you have uh, countries like the UK, where each child is given uh, 5,000 pounds at birth, put into an account, that when they turn 18, they can have access to it. It gains interest, and they can use that to start a business. They can use that to go to college. Yeah, that's one of the ways. Um, you, know, we, you know, I think that Professor Torres brings up a very good point. Uh, Last, talking about how it's important to use race to identify broad social problems and then step back and look beyond them and ask who all is really impacted. We're in a moment now where our struggle really is a human rights struggle. It's not, you know, a difference between a civil rights struggle and a human rights struggle is that a civil rights struggle is about enforcing the social contract, right? So when we were fighting in the... 1940s, 1950s, 1960s to enforce the 14th, 15th, 13th Amendment to the Constitution. We were seeking to enforce something that had existed for decades. Right? It's a contract that had been signed in the 19th century. And so it was a civil rights struggle because we were enforcing the rights that the government had guaranteed us, to be part of the civic body. A human rights struggle is about extending the social contract, about amending the social contract. A human rights struggle, the struggle against slavery, came to its apex in winning the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment and then turned it into a civil rights struggle to enforce those. So while you may, the courts are often your primary tool for enforcing, civil rights, because it's about enforcing a contract, it's like any other contract. Politics is your primary means for gaining human rights, for extending the contract, for defining the contract. The process of defining that contract is a, is a battle, and you win with 51%. That means that it behooves us to be really crystal clear when we're dealing with an issue that's purely about race, or we're dealing with an issue that's about something else in which race is a factor. Going back for a second to Skip Gates porch. If we had led with, this is about abuse of authority. If we had led with, this is about abuse of authority. This is about how officers abuse their authority again and again and again. I guarantee you, and then followed with, and race was a factor, It. To what extent he abuses authority? We, we would have gotten further if you look at the opinion polls. Every single demographic in this country, at significant levels, has been a victim. Self-reporting of law enforcement abuse. Now I'm not saying that black folks don't catch hell more, don't catch it more often. the young people left, they haven't apologized for that, but want to see our sleep. Um, you know, don't catch your words. Don't don't catch your word. But then you're talking about race as something that defines the degrees, and the issue of law enforcement abuse. It's like the issue of payday lending, right? Payday lending is more prevalent in black people. Why? Because we start off with eighty-five grand less, right? So we're more likely to need a short-term loan from something you know, not be able to provide to ourselves or from a family member. But it doesn't know any color. And payday lending ranges from the 350% to 1,200%. In California where I lived before coming out here most recently it was 469%. And it was standing right above the window. I mean you just, you just walk in We like not even walk in, walk up to the glass window look at the teller, look up and it said equivalent APR for a 14 day loan, 469%. And to put that in perspective, right, sharecropping was like 40%. The top rate. Range from 15 to low end, 40 at the high end. People might know are still angry about sharecropping. cropping top rate was 40%. Loan sharking, common rate is 520%. Why loan sharks? Ain't that bright. just drop a zero, you borrow 50, you owe me five on it, you keep owing me five on it until you pay back my 50. So at the low end, we're talking about something that's 10 times worse than sharecropping. At the high end, it's 2.5 times as bad as loan sharking. It's completely legal. We have financial services regulatory reform moving like a fast train through Washington. And we have to be out there. you'll see the NAACP get out there this fall across the country as we move towards the holidays. People start increasing their use of predatory loans. One, to say don't let, you know, the shark kill salmon, right? Two, to say this needs to be part of financial services, right? Don't talk to me about reforming financial services, giving trust in the financial, as long as loan sharking is legal. Don't tell me that stimulus is going to trickle down as long as 1.9 million families in California are paying 469%. And again, that's an example of an issue that it cuts across. What Professor Torres described in the 10% plan, that is what the future of affirmative action looks like in this country. And we have to understand that, and we have to get out in front of that. Let me repeat that. That is what the future of affirmative action looks like in this country. Why do I say that? Because Ward Connerly, we can keep off the ballot three out of four times. But when he gets on the ballot, he cleans our clock eight out of ten times. The question is, are we willing to get out in front of him? The purpose of affirmative action (coughs) is to end inheritance as a substitute for merit. That's the purpose of affirmative action. Dr. King gave us a challenge in his letter from a Birmingham jail that we still haven't really ever wrestled with completely. In that letter, he says, we have to recognize that poor white Prison guards have more in common with poor black prisoners and protesters than they don't <coughs> than they don't. We have families in Eastern California, families in Appalachia, families in Western Maryland that have been locked families, white like families in the city that have been locked out of opportunity for generations. And when you put in place a 10% plan, the reason you mix up the politics, you make it defensible, is because you recognize their utter humanity, and you actually get down to, closer to the theological truth behind affirmative action than we've gotten to yet, which is that in a democracy, you only realize true democracy when you can recognize the complete humanity of every human being in that society. I'm not talking about class replacing race or gender, that would be an utter failure. What I'm talking about is what exists on most college campuses. See, in public employment, public contracting, we tend to have two buckets. We have a bucket for race, and we have a bucket for gender. But on a college campus, you also have a bucket for class. So we give preference based on race. Why? Because black people have been discriminated against for centuries continuing to today. We have a preference for gender. Why? Because gender oppression is real, and it's been real for centuries right up to today. And there's a bucket for gender, and what the, I mean, for class. And what that bucket looks like it's, it's geographic preferences, saying if you're applying from Appalachia, we'll give you a Lego. It's a first time college. We're saying, look, nobody in your family's gone to college, regardless of what color you are, we'll give you a, a uh, Lego. It's Harvard University saying, if your families are poor, you're coming for free. The reality is that all those things will disproportionately Impact black people, Latino people, Asian people, because we're disproportionately poor. But it also will create space for opening the doors for poor white Protestants. And quite frankly, poor white, multi-generational poor white Protestants, people have like absolutely no voice in the society except for the complex claim. And are totally liable to being bamboozled by somebody like, like Glenn Beck. Who, you know, let's not fool him thinking he's speaking of them, because he's not. But if we want to mix up the equation, then let's recognize and say, look, yes, we need to keep in place gender-conscious form affirmative action. We need to keep in place race-conscious form affirmative action. But just like the college campus, we also got to create a place for a white family that's been poor since they showed up here 100 years ago.
1: Please join me in thanking these two distinguished guests. Thank you all for coming.